Hi friends, my name is Kevin. This is the Via Media Podcast, Episode 3, Ask Life-Promoting Questions. In 2016, the internet sketch comedy show Studio C uploaded this video of a teacher soliciting questions from her students on mitosis, the name we give to a process by which cells divide. And that class is everything you need to know about mitosis. Any questions? Yes, Derek. Um, this might be a stupid question. Uh, there's no such thing as a stupid question, Derek. How is mitosis... How is mitosis what? How is mitosis? Like, how is it doing? Yeah, like, is he okay? The sketch continues with the teacher becoming more and more exacerbated with the nonsense questions that her students ask, while at the same time spouting common cultural axioms that attempt to affirm the students in their asking. She says things like, no questions are dumb, and the only stupid question is the one that remains unasked. My personal favorite is, Hey, this is a lame question. A question is the heart crying out for truth. Purified water? Comedy is a prophetic art form, and really good comedians understand that their craft is an act of public prophecy, an unveiling of the foolishness of our beliefs and our behaviors. This kind of comedy is a powerful tool for illuminating the truth of the matter, for exposing the absurd, and for shining light on the ridiculous, making it explicit so we can better get at the truth. And this sketch exposes the truth about some questions not actually being very good questions. The reality of it could be summed up in a comic strip line I read many years ago, also depicted in a classroom with a teacher and students, which read, Tommy, there's no such thing as a stupid question, but if there was, that would have been it. The Studio C sketch works because no matter how much one wants to hold on to the idea that all questions are valid, the fact is there really is such a thing as a bad question, and we all ask them from time to time. The most common of these are called loaded questions, which are grammatically in the form of question but they're really biased assumptions, opinions, or even arguments in the form of a question. You'll find these questions abundant in political punditry. Under the facade of journalism, the questions that are asked are merely meant to attack the subject and affirm the audience's already perceived bias or viewpoint. Sometimes the questions are simply gotcha questions. These kinds of questions are terribly irritating off-putting, and they undermine public discourse. These kinds of questions are not intended to get at the truth, but rather to assert a particular view as the truth. Questions, inquiry, curiosity, and the search for deeper understanding is a core value of Via Media. Questions cause intrigue, provoke imagination, and advance human flourishing, but this confession also recognizes that there are other kinds of questions that are not valued, questions that distract from curiosity and undermine our efforts at deeper understanding. Those kinds of questions alienate, demean, and are sometimes deployed as rhetorical weapons. And so it is insufficient to simply say, we value questions. The work ahead of us requires that we identify the kinds of questions that we value, because the maxim, there is no such thing as a stupid question, is false. 
So let's interrogate further the nature of questions, where they come from, and how they actually work. And we can start by going back to Studio C's satirical comedy sketch because, ironically, the subject matter of that class, biology, is where we will find the nature of life and life's processes to be insightful for our inquiry into the nature of questions. On December 27, 1831, an English officer of the Royal Navy of England named Captain Robert Fitzroy set sail to embark on a five-year expedition around the world. Departing from Plymouth, England, he would tour his ship and crew around the tip of South America, across the Pacific, through the Indian Ocean, and around South Africa back to England. Being an accomplished scientist himself in meteorology, Fitzroy wanted a naturalist to accompany him on this trip to take collections and do surveys, and had appointed Robert McCormick, a Royal Navy surgeon, for the task. A problem, however, arose for McCormick because there was also a private citizen on board, someone known in those circles as a mere gentleman, to provide companionship for the ship's staff and crew. His collections were superior to McCormick, and Captain Fitzroy gave this self-financed civilian preferential treatment and attention. McCormick became so disgruntled that he departed the ship and sailed back to England to find a different voyage to join, leaving this private citizen as the chief naturalist on the ship, the HMS Beagle. That private citizen was named Charles Darwin, a 22-year-old natural history student who once previously studied theology in order to become a minister. Charles took copious notes on this journey and his 500-page journal of this expedition, The Voyage of the Beagle, records his observations of indigenous populations, native species of animals, flora and fauna, and geological features of the landscape. On this trip, Charles amassed one of the most famous collections of animal and plant specimens in the world, including various fossils, beetles, and the now famous Darwin's finches. Charles would later affirm that the voyage of the Beagle has been by far the most important event in my life and has determined my whole career. What Charles may not have known is that trip also determined the whole course of biological studies for more than a century. What began as a chance opportunity to travel and study nature would, over the course of his life, expand into a comprehensive scientific theory of evolution that included concepts such as variations among species, common descent with modification, and the fundamental premise of natural selection. These ideas have been some of the most profoundly revolutionary ideas in the history of science that still influence our world today. Now to understand why these ideas were revolutionary, we have to remember that Charles Darwin's ideas were an alternative to a prevailing view of design, the idea that the world was created as is, with all its intricacy and complexity, by a divine creator. William Paley, in his 1802 book, Natural Theology, or Evidences of the Existence and Attributes of the Deity, articulated the analogy of a watch and a watchmaker. The argument is pretty simple. If you see a watch with all its complex intricacies of gears and springs, 
you would intuitively conclude that there must have been a watchmaker. In philosophical circles, this is known as a teleological argument from the Greek word telos, which means goal or aim. The idea that life has a purpose and therefore our existence did not come about by random chance. In philosophy, this is known as intelligent design and is a prevailing counterview that still thrives to this day. What is interesting is that these competing perspectives have been highly influential, not just in science, but also in the humanities, in philosophy, and in religion. For if it is correct that there is no designer, then there is no intelligence behind life's processes and therefore no purpose. Life operates ultimately by chance and adaptation until there's enough fitness for survival and reproduction. Since the time when Charles articulated his views, various iterations have posited social and ethical conclusions that claim to be rooted in the Darwinian view. The most famous of these is the phrase, survival of the fittest, first coined by Herbert Spencer in his 1864 book, The Principles of Biology. Spencer believed that Darwin's theories could be applied to human societies, giving rise to a whole other area of philosophy called social Darwinism. A hundred years later, Richard Dawkins would publish his 1976 book, The Selfish Gene, instilling that term in our modern lexicon, popularizing and developing this idea even further with modern sophistication. And the underlying premise of this persistent idea is actually found in the full title of Charles Darwin's famous book, On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. Fitness, selfishness, favored races, selection, and struggle are key concepts in this view and have been used as justification for a variety of social outcomes, such as racism, imperialism, eugenics, and inequality. And this is mainly why the continued religious fight against Darwinism has been so persistent and rigorous. The biological view of life, regardless of its validity, has real implications for how humans understand the core of reality and the fundamental laws of our social existence. Today, the Darwinian explanation of the process of evolution is still the predominant view of biology. But over the course of the last couple decades, significant shifts in thinking have been taking place as we understand better and deeper the fundamental nature of life and life's processes. And this emerging view is augmenting much of the Darwinian hypothesis, suggesting that we've been seeing the natural world and biological systems incorrectly. Now, many of our scientific advancements have confirmed Darwin's general observations. Genetics has provided a hereditary map of descent that shows common ancestry. We can observe new species coming into existence through various mutations in organisms, giving rise to an ever-growing diversity of life. But the mechanics of how all this happens, we are discovering, doesn't happen just because of struggle, competition over scarce resources, or random acts of fitness selection. Rather, we are discovering a far more creative, cooperative, networked, 
an intelligent process by which life emerges, thrives, and sustains itself. And just as the previous Darwinian view of life had significant implications for how we understood the natural laws of human organization, this new view is propelling the philosophical, spiritual, and cultural revolution that is currently taking place. For example, the forests, once understood as individual trees competing for scarce resources such as sunlight and water, are now being understood as a vast network of communicative and cooperative organisms. The root systems of trees in the forest create an underground fungal network called a mycorrhizal network, made up of tiny threads of mycelium, extensions of fungal organisms that wrap around the roots of trees. This mycorrhizal network is an expansive network of connections in which plants transfer water, nitrogen, carbon, and other life-sustaining chemicals between each other. They even emit slow pulsing electrical signals which are similar to the nervous systems we understand in animals. Research also suggests that warning signals are also communicated when there is danger. In addition, through this network, adult trees pass on learned information to the next generation of seedlings to create resiliency through the generations of the organism. Suzanne Simard, a forest ecologist from the University of British Columbia, even coined a term describing this relationship, calling it the wood wide web. Here is Suzanne describing her findings in a TED talk in 2016. And using our isotope tracers, we have found that mother trees will send their excess carbon through the mycorrhizal network to the understory seedlings. And we've associated this with increased seedling survival by four times. When mother trees are injured or dying, they also send messages, wisdom, onto the next generation of seedlings. So we've used isotope tracing to trace carbon moving from an injured mother tree down her trunk into the mycorrhizal network and into her neighboring seedlings. Not only carbon, but also defense signals. And these two compounds have increased the resistance of those seedlings to future stresses. So trees talk. So let's come back to the initial point. Forests aren't simply collections of trees. They're complex systems with hubs and networks that overlap and connect trees and allow them to communicate. And they provide avenues for feedbacks and adaptation. And this makes the forest resilient. That's because there are many hub trees and many overlapping networks. Similar observations are being made throughout the natural world, showing that life is a vast network of diverse organisms that are self-sustaining, regenerative, and cooperative. And because these characteristics arise from an ability to interact and respond to the organism's environment, much like the wood wide web, many are suggesting that life is inherently intelligent making the old debate about natural selection versus intelligent design a bit nonsensical. One of those people is Fritjof Capra, an Austrian-American physicist. Here he is explaining the four essential characteristics of what he calls a systems view of life, an intricate web of dynamic interconnectivity and interdependency. Life organizes itself in networks. So this contains the idea of the network being the basic pattern of organization. 
of all living systems. And the idea that life organizes itself, its structure and behavior is not determined from the outside, but is determined by the living system itself. The second one is life is inherently regenerative. A living system continually generate and regenerates itself at all levels of life. This is known as the theory of autopoiesis, which means self-making. The third characteristic is that life is inherently creative. And that refers to this uh, phenomenon of emergence, the spontaneous emergence of novelty, of something new, new structures, new behavior patterns, new processes, which is characteristic of life at all levels. Life is inherently creative. The last one, the fourth characteristic, is perhaps the most radical one for you know, conventional scientists, and it is that life is inherently intelligent. We have an intuitive sense of that when we observe our pets, for instance, we know that they are intelligent, but this is also true for plants, even for bacteria. Life is inherently intelligent and in terms of concepts and theories, this is embodied in the so-called Santiago theory of cognition, which I discuss in the course, which says that the interactions of a living organism with its environment are cognitive interactions. The process of cognition, which is the process of knowledge, is very closely linked to the very process of life. So whenever you have life, you have knowledge. Whenever you have life, you have cognition. And this is why we can say life is inherently intelligent. So rather than a previously held Darwinian view of struggle, random mutation, and unintelligently unguided processes, we are starting to now understand life as incredibly cooperative, regenerative, creative, and intelligent. Which means you and I are not mere machines and chemicals, nor are we in fierce competition for scarce resources. And we are not random mutations trying to simply be fit enough to replicate our genes. We are dynamically interconnected profoundly creative and highly intelligent organisms. And we might truly be transformed if we saw our questions, our intrigue, our curiosity as the cognitive extensions of that very same biological process of responding to and interacting with our environment in ways that connect, create, and conceive of solutions that advance life. And it is through this lens that we can now understand what makes for a bad question. A bad question is one that breaks down or disintegrates the network, undermines the process of creativity, and seeks confidence and certainty in an answer rather than a process that creatively generates new ideas, novel potentialities, 
and imaginative possibilities. The first dumb question that was asked in the Studio C sketch was, how is mitosis? Perhaps this is not such a bad question after all, because mitosis is an incredibly intelligent process by which our human bodies grow and repair. When something damaging happens to our bodies, our cellular systems respond by regenerating and replacing damaged cells. Mitosis is absolutely fundamental to life. Without it, life would not exist. I propose that we apply this same understanding to our curiosity and ask questions that regenerate and replace bad thinking, cognitive biases, and false beliefs. No more questions that are meant to trap or ensnare one another. No more gotcha questions or questions that seek to undermine or make a point. Let us embrace questions that help us understand better by adapting to new environments, questions that help us seek new adaptive solutions to problems and expand our imaginative capacities to explore creative solutions and possibilities. These are the questions that throughout human history have advanced human flourishing because they are commensurate with the fundamental processes of life. These, my friends, are the questions we value, and let's keep asking them. This podcast is a project of Via Media. We are a not-for-profit media and community organization dedicated to inspiring a curious and hopeful humanity. Our work is focused on the stories by which we live, the communities with whom we belong, and the purposes to which we contribute. We are community and donor supported and would love to have you join us. Please visit www.viamedia.center.